As a visitor, I want to add my welcome to those of you who may be visiting in this assembly this morning. And what you're wondering is how in the world is he going to finish up the Sermon on the Mount in three sessions? I'm wondering the same. So open your Bibles to the fifth chapter of Matthew. And we'll continue our study of this great sermon together. Appreciate the kind words of Brother Jenkins and view the fact they've received us so warmly into their home and seen us in all our aspects. It's great that he feels as he does. They have been wonderful, uh, and we are grateful for it in so many ways. We've looked at the characteristics, the character of kingdom citizens, and it's astonishing, really, because we can say with confidence that they are all failures. And we need to recognize that we, too, came to the kingdom as failures, undeserving and unworthy. And it's because of the goodness and grace of God that we have received what we have received. And then we concluded with the calling that we have. We're to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Of course, all that's reflective. We got that from God. So that whatever we do and accomplish, we must say to God, be the glory. But I want to begin in the fifth chapter this morning in verse 17. As we begin to open up this radical righteousness that is the demand of the kingdom. Jesus begins by saying, don't think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. Why does he need to say that? By the time this sermon is preached, he's had three head-to-head conflicts with the Pharisees. And I remind you that the word Pharisee was not a bad word in those days, as it is with us. It's no compliment to say that someone is a Pharisee. But they were the keepers of the law. They were the guardians of the law. They were not able to keep the holy city because it was sacked. But it was their task from the beginning to hold fast to the Holy Word. But it had become hypocritical, shallow, and superficial. And so consequently, it is necessary for Jesus to explain, I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets. In fact, I want to say to you that till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot nor one tittle, not one small part of the law and the prophets will fail of fulfillment. And even says that he is going to do that. In this particular short section, there are three things that are made clear. First of all, that he is the son of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the God that he serves is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the second thing that's clear is that the law and the prophets are thought by him to be absolutely true. They're the words of his father and he has absolute confidence in them. And if you and I are going to be followers of Jesus, we're going to have to take up his attitude toward the scripture. And his attitude was that it's absolutely solid and true. And the third and the amazing thing is, and here's where the preacher comes into the picture. He came to fulfill them. He came to fulfill them. 
He is the one who's going to fulfill the eternal purpose of God. So this is a tremendous sermon. But it's intended to get us to believe in the preacher. And our attitude toward him is critical. So having said that, we'll move on to verse 21. It's introduced in verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. It's interesting that Jesus names the problem. We get increasingly, well, careful about mentioning any names today. And I think we need to be careful. I've told young preachers this. If you want to speak about some particular doctrine that is not in accordance with the will of God, think that there's somebody in the audience who holds that view and that you're having a conversation with them so that you don't try to entertain the audience by the way you tear that thing apart. We need to remember that the object of the gospel is people. And many of them hold ideas and concepts that are not correct. But our approach to them must be one of grace and clarity and plainness. But we need to remember that we're trying to lead them to a better path. But Jesus mentions the Pharisees straight out. They are front and center of the Sermon on the Mount because he understands that unless he can blast away the preposterous ideas that the Pharisees have about God's truth, that they, others will never be able to understand the kingdom of God. And so he mentions them here. And then there are six contrasts that follow. When I was a young Christian and heard preachers address this particular section, they said it's a contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I didn't question that for a long time. And there are some people who think I shouldn't question it now. But he's saying to us not, here's what the Old Testament said, but this is what I say. It's the preposterous perversions of the Pharisees that he's dealing with here. And he introduces it to say that the righteousness of the Pharisees will never be enough to satisfy God's purpose. So you have heard that it was said. Jesus knew how to quote scripture. He would say it is written, or he would cite the very author of the work he's citing. But here he's saying, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Of course, it sounds awful much like the Old Testament, you shall not murder. But you've got to understand that the thrust of this is you shall not murder. You shall not actually kill anybody. Because that will get you into trouble with the law. But he goes on to say, but I say to you. Notice, I say to you. This is the voice of God here. This is Jesus teaching the gospel of the kingdom. This is not Jesus' exposition of the law merely. It is Jesus telling you the law of the kingdom is. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. So he gets down to the heart. This is a radical 
righteousness because it starts with where every unrighteous thing begins. There's also a a moving scale in these six contrasts. He starts out talking about what you ought not to do if you love people. And behind all these contrasts is the issue of loving your neighbor as yourself. And if you love your neighbor as yourself, you certainly do not kill them. But he says there's more to it than that. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause, and by the way, that without a cause is not in the best manuscript. That sort of slipped in there. Without a cause, he says, shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Rekha, shall be in danger of the council. And whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of the hell of fire. He says, first of all, you get your heart right. Anger is the problem. That's where it starts out. It's a selfish kind of disposition. And anger can lead and does lead to other things. So he starts with anger and then he gets to the tongue. When I was young, I would call a man anything under the sun but something fine. But I would never call him a fool. (laughs) Because it was clear that that was what was really bad. That, of course, is not the thrust of Jesus' teaching here. He's simply saying to you that your heart is where this problem begins, and it gets in the tongue. And when you start lacerating people with your tongue, you are murdering them. As John says in 1 John 3.16, that he that hates his brother is a murderer. This is very clear. So we need to be careful, first of all, about our thoughts toward other people. They need to be beneficent, they need to be gracious, they need to be with the Spirit of Christ. And consequently, sometimes we are able to destroy people with our tongues in a more efficient way than if we had taken a gun and shot them to death. Our intention is to diminish them. Our intention is to make them feel inadequate. That's what the tongue is used for. It's vicious. And we will, be given, we will be judged by every word we speak, Jesus says, in another place. So he's gotten deep into the issue. They say don't murder, but you can slice them into pieces with your tongue and call them anything but a good person uh, so as to diminish them and destroy them that way. So watch your thoughts. And especially watch your tongue. Therefore, he says in verse 23, if you bring your gift to the altar and there, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar. Go your way, first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. This is an extension of what he's been saying already. When he says, if you remember that your brother has something against you, he's not talking about somebody that's just a little bit difficult and gets upset at you for no good cause. He's talking about something you have done against your brother. And you remember that you sinned against your brother. And you're ready to offer your gift at the altar, which would have been the kind of worship that the Jews would have been involved in. And this... This thing that needs settling so immediately that you need to just stop right there and work that thing out. Because until you do, your prayers are not going to get above the roof. Your worship is not going to be accepted. Oftentimes we hold grudges. 
sometimes against others. And it's no, there is no question that it nullifies worship. Uh, we like to think those that teach doctrines, the doctrines of men, worship God in vain. But so do people who sin against others and are not penitent and come to worship continually. And we have to face, according to this text, we have to face our victim. You need to go and deal with this thing. And it is urgent that you do so. Um, But this is difficult. We do hate to face our victims and to deal with our sins. But brothers and sisters, unless we can continue to be able to say the words, I was wrong when I did that. And I am so sorry. I'm pleading with you to forgive me. Unless we can say those things, we're not going to make it spiritually. I wish it could be true that we'd never again sin once we become a Christian. But the evidence of Scripture is that that's not going to be possible. And so we need to be ready to make open expression of our grief about our wrongs done to others. And then he gives advice in verse 25. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will you by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. This is, of course, the first in this text, the first mention of hell. It's interesting that the word Gehenna is used in the New Testament, exclusively by Jesus, except one exception, and that's in the book of James. He speaks about hell frequently. We ought to be able to speak about it too. Why does he speak about it so frequently? Because he does not want us to go there. We are being warned of the consequences of our activity, and it's an awful consequence. But he says here, you need to... To agree with your adversary quickly. This is not good advice about lawsuits now. The subject in the context indicates that we need to work this thing out with the person that we have wronged. And we need to do quickly on the way before we get before the judge. The judge he's talking about here is not a legal judge, not a human judge. He's talking about the ultimate judgment of God. And if you don't get mercy now... And you want to wait until you stand before the great God to deal with your wrongdoing. You will not get any mercy then. There's mercy possible now. But if you stand before the great tribunal, the heavenly tribunal, you will not get out, he says, until you paid the last penny. You don't want to face God that way. Now's the time to obtain mercy. This is the time of grace and mercy. I don't know how well I've dealt with that, but you can see that we're going down deeply into the subject of righteousness. Now he takes up another thing. Not only is is hatred, not only is vicious speech murder, but now we're going to learn that something is adultery that we did not anticipate perhaps. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Which sounds a lot like the Old Testament, certainly. But he does not quote the Old Testament. He says, that's what you've heard. Don't commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust 
for her, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This digs deep. And is it particularly appropriate in a world where pornography has absolutely overwhelmed us and is available easily any way you want to find it? Adultery is committed when we look with desire on the opposite sex and continue to do so and let it stay there until it begins to affect our behavior. David did not sin because he saw Bathsheba. He sinned because he looked at Bathsheba. The old proverb is that you can't, provi- you can't prevent the birds from flying over your head, but you must prevent them from making a nest in your hair. be difficult in my case, but... To be tempted is not sin. But sin comes when that temptation stays there and we continue to sort of invite it there. But we have to control ourselves. It's interesting to me that Job understood this principle. In the 31st chapter of Job when he said, I've made a covenant with my heart. How can I look upon a young woman? His wife was not exactly a fine person. And not a great help in the time of his trouble. She who said, why don't you just curse God and die? But that didn't matter. She was his wife and he had no business, even though he lived before the giving of the law. He had no business looking upon a young woman. And so we have to make a covenant with our hearts, too, that we are not going to do that. It's a decision that we have to make and Jesus is warning here. That it's not just the actual act of adultery that is a sin. But looking on a woman to lust after her is also a transgression that we will have to face. And it is so important that it be dealt with. He said, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. Of course, this is not literal language. And people who said, I believe the Bible literally would have to kind of work hard at this task. And some people have actually tried to do it. But he's talking about the fact that things can get so deep inside of us by repetition that it can be very difficult to rid ourselves of it. And it may be equivalent to the pain of taking your eye and plucking it out and casting it from you. It is it is made a part of you by repetition. We can be deeply involved in this sort of thing so that it will be painful when we stop it. But he says, you're not only to pluck it out, but cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. This is a critical matter. You can go to hell with pornography. You can be lost eternally with pornography. It is a very addictive problem. And it can get hold of you in such a way that it will not be easily plucked out. But not only that, it says, if your right hand causes you to stumble or to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. So we need to face this honestly and candidly. 
that things like this can get hold of us. And, of course, we are not seen to do this by others. The fact that you are lusting in this particular way is not visible to other people, but it's visible to God. And our concern needs to be to please Him and to recognize that He is aware of everything that's taking place. So, hatred is murder and lust is adultery. Verse 31. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Some years ago, 60% of Baptist preachers said they had never preached that part of the Sermon on the Mount. This digs pretty deeply, too. What Jesus says here is if you love your wife and she is a faithful wife and never has been unfaithful to you and you divorce her, you make her an adulteress. It is presumed she will marry again. But whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. I have heard it said and seen it practiced that divorce is not a sin as long as you don't marry again. In fact, I've heard people say, I, I'm done with this marriage. I just don't want to continue it. It's unpleasant to me. And I, I have no interest in continuing. I don't want to be married to anybody else. Of course, at that moment, that statement is made. I'm not interested in marrying anybody else, but I want to end this marriage. Jesus says, you cannot divorce for any other reason. Not a question of any remarriage afterward. You cannot divorce for any other reason than sexual immorality. Whether you marry again is beside the point. You are not acting with love towards your mate when you do that. You're not acting as love towards your mate because you become complicit in what happens. She gets involved in adultery. Her own soul is destroyed. And then somebody marries her and his soul is destroyed as a consequence of the fact that you just didn't want to be married. I'm sorry. What did you say when you married? I will keep myself to you alone as long as we both shall live. You made a promise and a covenant before God. And now you've decided you just don't want to continue. I read in this text from the Sermon on the Mount that it is not permissible for you to divorce a wife except for one reason. And may we turn it around, it's not right for you to divorce a husband except for one reason. Any other kind of divorce will be contrary to the will of God. Now that's hard language. And it's not acceptable to a lot of Christians. And I read something from... John R. W. Scott Thought, whom I've read a good bit from and with profit. I confess to a basic reluctance to attempt an exposition of this verse. This is partly because divorce is a controversial and complex subject that even more because it is a subject which touches people's emotions at a deep level. 
Yet it is because I am convinced that the teaching of Jesus in this subject, and every subject is good, intrinsically good, good for individuals, good for society, that I take my courage in both hands and write on. <laughs> he didn't say much about it. I understand that. It's easy enough to teach the principle. But when it gets to applying the principle to living human flesh, it's not so easy. But we need to have this confidence, and this is principle, that God never said anything that was not for our good here and hereafter. Deuteronomy 6.24 The commandments of God are for our good always. And so when we reject the commandment of God, we're rejecting our own good. He loves us. He is not acting against our best interest any time he gives a commandment. And so this commandment about marriage and divorce is one that's intended to be a blessing to us. So, enough said. If you love your mate... You do not divorce them, save for one reason. And that reason is such you cannot make one an adulteress who already is. But I want to add this to it. This is permissive, not commandment. The best thing that can happen, if it can be worked out, is the reconciliation of those two people, even though adultery has occurred. It is a deep wound. And we can understand that. But if the person who's guilty is penitent and wants to change the direction of things, there ought to be some mercy in us to lead in that direction. I'll leave it at that. Jesus goes on. And again you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. What the Old Testament said is, if you take an oath, you must take an oath in the name of God, the true God. And if you take an oath in the name of the true God, you better tell the truth. Um, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Ten One of the Ten Commandments is stating a principle having to do with taking an oath. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. But what they were doing, and that's evident from the 23rd chapter of Matthew, they had a clever way of lying to deceive, but not be accountable for any wrong. If you swear by this, you need to do it. If you swear by this, you don't have to keep it. I won't go into the details of the 23rd chapter of Matthew. You can read that for yourself. But he says that you shall perform to the Lord your oath. But I say to you, do not swear at all. Neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no, for whatever is more than this is from the evil one. What is God's concern? What is the concern of the Lord here? Truth. We serve a God of truth who cannot lie. 
And the purpose of this instruction is that we should always tell the truth. It's not a question of perjury. You don't want to commit perjury because if you commit perjury, then you're going to be called before the dock. You're going to be guilty of some violation of the law. But that's the purpose. We must always tell the truth. I'll, I'll pause here to remind you that God swore an oath, did he not, Sixth chapter of Hebrews, that we might have surety, not only by his promise, but by his oath, by two things, that there we should have absolute assurance about what he's going to do. The Lord swore an oath before uh, the high priest when she said, I jury you by the living God, tell us whether you're the Christ or not. And he said, as you have said, it is so. Uh, angel uh, swore oaths, but it can be said that's for them to do. What about ourselves? I have never taken an oath, a judicial oath. I don't have to take a judicial oath, but I read what the Apostle Paul has frequently said and I'm compelled to say that he often took oaths. Romans 1 verse 9. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayer. It would be difficult for me to say that was not an oath. God is my witness. In the ninth chapter, verse 9, chapter, verse 1, I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. So, and there are many other illustrations. But the purpose of an oath is not to make you any more obligated to tell the truth. You're obligated to tell the truth, I don't care what the circumstance. And God will hold us accountable for our deceptions. But to say that it never is possible for a Christian to take an oath, I have difficulty saying. But it's said not to make you more accountable for telling the truth. It's said to give encouragement and confidence to the person you're speaking to. That's the reason God swore his oath. Sixth chapter of Hebrews. Now, I say this after having said what I've said, that I'll be available to hear your concerns about that anytime you want to talk to me afterward. But remember, we will be responsible for every word we speak, and we must always tell the truth or keep our mouths shut. There are some truths that don't need to be told, because they're not told with love in our hearts for the person about whom we speak. But when we speak graciously, we need to always tell the truth, and we will be held accountable otherwise. All right, back to the text. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And it, it was said. That is a judicial statement of the law of Moses. And the intention of it was that the punishment must never be more than the infraction. There's a limit on what you can do. And it was administered by judges. But they were taking it to mean, I have a right to avenge the wrong done to me. 
And so he says, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him two. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. And we catch our breath when we read those words. Now, you can make them walk on all fours. Do not rest him who is evil. Jesus spoke to rebuke what was done to him on one occasion. And if we take this to be absolute, we're not to say one word about it. I think we misunderstand the teaching that's here. I don't think he's saying if somebody comes in your house to rob you and he's gotten everything that he could find and you say, but you've missed this. Have this also. I don't think he's saying to a merchant that if somebody comes in and steals a suit of clothes from your racks, you say, but you need a tie to go with this. And here's a shirt that you want to have as well. What's being said here is, You are not ever to return evil for evil. And if somebody needs what he has taken, let him have it. But Paul's statement in the 12th chapter of Romans, don't ever return evil for evil, but good for evil. Love is the principle here. We must act toward the one who has wronged us in such a way that there good is being sought, that we want to do what is right and helpful for them. So, um, I think that's the best way to take care of that particular statement instead of just saying, I can't do anything when somebody is trying to massacre me. No, you're not to resist evil with evil. Better to be hit twice There's no instruction in this text that says you can't run. But it's better to receive injury than to give it. That is the principle here. Return good for evil. Then we come to the last part. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now this, is a, this particular text is the subject of a lot of dispute. The reformers of the Great Reformation took the position that there are two kinds of ethics, personal ethics and social ethics. And here's what Carl F.H. Henry wrote about that. In Christian businessmen circles, it is often said that the Sermon on the Mount is the superlative code of ethics for success in business. 
But the fact is that a big businessman who conducts his trade by the ethics of the sermon, giving two garments when one is as free, not resisting violence, would soon find himself hopelessly in debt or completely out of business. A nation which runs its affairs by the laws of neighbor relations, acting only on the principle of unrequited love, giving twice as much as its enemies demand, and committed and committed to non-resistance of aggressions against it is in, is in process of national suicide, Christian personal ethics. What are you saying, personally, you need to do this? But if you have an office in government, you're not obligated to do it. Two kinds of ethics, social ethics and personal ethics. Speaking of that, Martin Luther said, If anyone breaks into my home, tries to do violence to my family or myself or to cause harm, I am bound to defend myself and them in my capacity as master of the house and head of the family. If brigands or murderers have tried to harm me or do me wrongful violence, I should have defended myself and resisted them in the name of the prince whose subject I am. I must help the prince to purge his country of bad subjects. And if I have the strength to cut this bandit's throat, it is my duty to take the knife to him. But if I am attacked on account of the divine word in my capacity as a preacher, then I must endure it and leave God to punish him and avenge me. You get the thrust of that? Personal ethics, you've got to love your enemy. But if you are acting out of your responsibility as the father of your family or you're acting out as an agent out of the state, then that's another subject. I have difficulty with that. But that's how we feel many times. If you read the book of Revelation, it's quite obvious that Christians were not defending themselves. You're going to have challenges on this particular subject because efforts are being made to try to protect local churches from active shooters. And we're going to have to decide how we're going to do that and whether we can do that by killing the person who comes to kill us. I don't have all the answers here, but I'm saying that sometimes we just sort of pass over this and do not deal with it honestly. He says, love your enemies. That means we will act out of the best interest of those who hate us and who would do us injury and harm. And if that is the case, how can I put to death someone who is seeking to kill me? In the times of Augustine, when Constantine became emperor of Rome and um, he legitimized Christianity and even supposedly became a Christian himself, Augustine began to develop a principle of just war. That if it was for just causes, and waged in a just way and for just purposes, it was permissible. Since the church now is locked in league with Constantine, the emperor, 
something needed to be worked out to justify the emperor in his wars. Thomas Aquinas extended that idea of the just war. You never kill civilians if you, if you conducted war in the just war way. But we dropped a bomb on Japan that obliterated cities. And Winston Churchill was candid about the fact that because the Germans were coming to London and just blasting civilians and war and soldiers alike without any difference between them, he was going to carpet bomb the German cities the same way. And he did. I'm not telling you that I've got the answers, but I'm saying that just war is seldom ever, that wars that are fought are seldom ever just wars. And that it's easier for me just to say I must never do anything to injure even my enemies. I must love my enemies. This does not mean warm affection. Jesus is not telling us that the people that are doing their best to destroy us, we ought to ask them if they'll come to the house and play checkers. Or that I'd like to spend next Saturday afternoon with you. This is affection. Love is an act of will. When we do the thing that we don't feel like doing, but we do it because it's right. And because it's the will of Christ that we do so. So I would just ask you to think very carefully about this matter. I do not have a gun. <laughs> I used to have a gun. It was an old 410-gauge shotgun my grandfather used to kill rats. And I never had any shells for it. But I cannot make myself comfortable with the idea that self-defense is an absolute law. If self-defense is absolute, then loving your enemy is not. If I can defend myself any way I choose and do whatever I can to prevent the injury that the other person intends to do me, if I can do that, then love is not the principle that's guiding me. I'm content to say this to you that you can do anything to the person who means injury to you that is consistent with loving your enemy. Somebody says, can I shoot him in the foot? Well, okay. If I were involved in some nefarious activity like these people are, I'd, I'd think it'd be a good thing if somebody had stopped me that way. But to send me straight to hell is something else. Somebody says, but they may kill you. I know that. Jesus dealt with that, didn't he? Do not fear him who can kill the body, but fear him who can cast both soul and body into hell. All they can do is kill us, but they cannot take our relationship to God and eternity away from us. What time am I supposed to stop with it? It's time. Good time to ask the question, wasn't it? Well, I'll get out of this thing. I'll be open for your questions anytime you want to talk to me.